Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Today, we're continuing our full scope of audiology series with a highly requested topic, working with animals. In the world of audiology, many, many people would love to work with animals, but many don't realize it's an option in the first place. Fortunately, today's guest is going to break down how it's possible to work with animals. He is the director of the University of Cincinnati Fetch Lab, Dr. Pete Shifley. Dr. Shifley is a Navy Vietnam era veteran who served in submarine sonar and as a weapons officer, Navy diver, and naval oceanographer. He directed the Navy Marine Mammal Technology Program, specializing in marine mammal bioacoustics research, and was head trainer at Mystic Aquarium. He was awarded the Order of the Decibel and a Presidential Citation by President George Bush Sr. for his pioneering work with marine mammal bioacoustics. He trained and handled narcotics and bomb dogs for the U.S. Coast Guard. He has worked with a lot of different animals. Presently, he directs the University of Cincinnati Fetch Lab, world-renowned for investigating animal audiology, vocal mechanisms and bioacoustics, and conducting animal audiology. Dr. Shifley also serves as the U.S. Army Special Forces and DOD subject matter expert and SME on tactical military working dog audiology and canine PTSD. He is professor of animal bioacoustics, audiology, and human neuroaudiology in the College of Allied Health Sciences, and otology and neurology in the College of Medicine. He is an esteemed guest. We are so fortunate that he's joining us to talk about this extremely fascinating topic. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Pete. How are you? My pleasure, and uh, I'm doing fine. Perfect. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about because this is when I kind of put the call out on our Instagram for the podcast, I said, I'm trying to do this series where we talk about some of the more, you know, niche roles an audiologist can play in their career. And, you know, some people said working primarily with vestibular or working primarily in research, but I would say the overwhelming majority wanted to hear more because at some point in our training or as an audiologist, we've heard, oh yeah, there are people out there working with animals. And we're like, wait, what? That's an option? So... Could we start with you just breaking down a little bit of, it seems like you've been there since we started working with animals in audiology at the beginning, right? Could you break down a little bit of of the history of that and like how you kind of came to be in a role like this? Sure. Animal audiology actually is an emerging facet of audiology that heretofore 
really hasn't played much of a role. Typically in the past, veterinary neurologists or veterinary dermatologists might run what we call the bear test, which in human audiology we call the ABR or auditory brainstem response. As it turns out, when Walt Disney came out with 101 Dalmatians, there was a large call for Dalmatians. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, breeding led to some genetic errors. And in this case, the genetic error is congenital deafness. As it stands right now, in the United States, 80 breeds of dogs suffer congenital deafness. And as a result of that, there came a call for the categorizing, archiving, and testing of puppies. And so because we are now in the age where we have electrophysiology, that is the gold standard that the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals, which is the archiver and keeper of these types of tests of not only congenital deafness, but other diseases, that is the gold standard for testing. Heretofore, audiologists did not do this. Veterinarians and veterinary neurologists and veterinary dermatologists would probably do that sort of testing, which is just a, what we call a puppy screening. And it's simply a go, no-go version of the ABR that says either the puppy is deaf or it's not. So when I got to the University of Cincinnati, and started teaching in communication sciences and disorders, it occurred to me because I had animal experience that maybe our audiology students could learn more if they went outside the box. Meaning, if you are doing audiological testing with people, we've been doing it for so long and there are you know, proven, universally accepted models for what children or adult audiometry should look like. And so people do the tests and it's kind of like, well, you just do it because you know the routine from A to Z. But when you have an animal on the table where there are not really any universally accepted norms, you don't really know what you're going to get. And you can't know what you're going to get unless you do it a lot, unless you really understand the equipment and you understand ABR in and of itself. So I thought this would be a good exercise for the students. But as it turned out, when we started to do this, we were overwhelmed. I get scheduled, I'm scheduled all the way, you know, past the summer now as it is. And it's not just with puppies, but now we have a lot of people that are coming in and saying, well, I have an older dog and I think my dog can't hear anymore or he's not behaving as if he can hear something. And so what I started Fetch Lab with the intent that an audiologist who learned animal audiology could work with a veterinarian in the same way that an audiologist could work with an ENT. And so the Fetch Lab that we have now, and actually there are three of them. There's one in, I have one in Akron, and I have one at the University of Northern Colorado, and there are a few more to come because we want that to be the case. We want audiologists to be able to work with veterinarians and be able to do diagnostic testing. Typically, a veterinarian is not going to do an OAE, 
many of them don't even know what it is. Typically, they're not going to do a threshold estimation, ABR. And that's because just like in human medicine and ENT, there's not enough time in medical school or veterinary medical school to do everything that they have to do and then spend the time that our students spend to become an AUD. So this Fetch Lab now hopefully bridges that gap and brings us into the 21st century with having animal audiology people that can routinely work with veterinarians and where people can go to find out whether their dog has a hearing loss, what kind of hearing loss it has, and so on and so forth. I have to caveat it here, though, and tell you this. When my students come into Fetch Lab, one of the first things I tell them is, if you are trying to get the animal audiology certificate, which you can only get from Fetch Lab, we're the only place on the planet that offers this certification, then don't quit your day job <laughs> because animal audiology is, like I say, it's emerging. It's just starting. So many people don't even know that it exists. And so if you're an audiologist, be an audiologist. But if you want to expand your horizons and do both human audiology and something that is outside the box where you can be helpful, then you can get the animal audiology certificate. Along with that, it turns out that when Fetch Lab got rocking and rolling, it turns out that I had some dogs that came in that had a hearing loss, but they were not profoundly deaf. And they had enough residual hearing that actually a hearing aid might be useful to them. So way back when, there was a fellow at Auburn that did some hearing aids, tried to put some hearing aids on dogs, and I don't know whatever became of it, it stopped. But right now, Fetch Lab is the only place on the planet that actually we put hearing aids on canines. There's a lot of problems with that, the way that it goes, because it's in its infancy. I'm in the process of, uh, I have, you know, some grant money coming to work to make a canine hearing aid that is just for dogs, and that will be affordable by owners. Because right now, we've put nine hearing aids on dogs, but that means we have to use a human hearing aid and then try to kind of remove or strip it of some of the things that a dog would not need to have in a hearing aid. So it's very much in its infancy but hopefully that will come up. And so that's another facet that goes in to the whole mix of what's going on with Fetch Lab. Along the way... It's amazing. Yeah, it's outside the box for sure. And it's, <laughs> and it's new and different. I'm actually quite shocked that the university allowed me to open up a Fetch Lab and, and do animal audiology. And as it turns out, because I am ex-military... I should say I'm ex-military, but I'm not ex-military anymore because I've been called by, by our government back and the Army Research Office to actually develop hearing protection for canines, doing kennel mitigation of uh, military oh, wow. kennels, and actually training military veterinarians to be able to do some of these tests. We're looking at dogs. I deal a lot with dogs that have gone to Afghanistan and Iraq you know, more than maybe three times or more, and who are coming back and, and having some issues. One of the first issues that we had was handlers would tell me that they got in a helicopter, and when they got to the LZ, the landing zone, they got out of the chopper, and the dog wasn't 
taking verbal commands. And so what I had to find out and what I did find out wound up talking to them about is, so you're riding in a helicopter where the noise level is well over 100 dB. And so everybody in the chopper is required and does wear hearing protection, except the dog. Oh my so goodness, now, they have like a temporary threshold shift or something? Yeah, so what happens is you get a one-hour flight, they come down maybe in the middle of a firefight, maybe not, and the dog is not taking verbal commands because he can't hear the verbal commands. Wow. And so we had, I had to you know, do some experimentation and show the Army that this is the case. You have to put hearing protection on your dog. Now, the handlers are very conscientious, and they try all kinds of things, ranging from cotton to folding the dog's ears over. You know, mm. But then, as we all know, as audiologists, I tell them, you know, putting cotton in the dog's ear or just flopping the ear over is useless. It's not going to do anything. You need an actual hearing protection device that the dog can wear in flight. So I would say that now at Fetch Lab UC, where I am, because of my security clearance and whatever, I would say that about probably more than 60% of the time, I'm working on projects for uh, the Department of Defense. And uh, so that added to what we already had. Well, as you know, students that are trying to get an AUD degree, or at least at least at the University of Cincinnati, are required to do a capstone project. And so I kind of started roping my people that wanted to be in Fetch Lab into doing other projects. And because I had primary previous experience as a trainer at Mystic Aquarium, and we did all of the, and still do, all of the acoustic work for the Georgia Aquarium. Oh, cool. We love yeah. we love the Atlanta Aquarium there. Yeah, we love that one. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I started getting my students into that. The Army came up with another project that was a kind of a special project on the side. And that turned out to be, they wanted to know what an elephant could actually hear, an African elephant. And there's only been one behavioral hearing test of elephants, and it was done uh, years ago on an Indian, a young Indian elephant. And so typically now each year, up until COVID came, I would take students over to Bella Bella in South Africa. Oh we have goodness. seven wild elephants over there that they bring in, and they have been working with them, the handlers over there, to get them the idea that if they come and stand by this big log and let us put things on them, that they get well rewarded for that. And so we're in the process of trying to find out exactly what is the hearing threshold of an African elephant. Now, we know we've done the upper frequencies, but we have not done the lower frequencies, which are considerably harder to do. We have also worked with elephants, walruses, and dolphins at the Indianapolis Zoo. Uh, as I mentioned to you about the Atlanta Aquarium, when the Atlanta Aquarium was being built, I got summoned by the people who were the fathers of the aquarium, and they were very, very interested and very conscientious about, we're going to have marine mammals in here, notably beluga whales, dolphins, and such, that are living in a pool that is 
running with life support systems, pumps all the time, their whole life, and they can't get away from it. And they want to make sure that these animals were going to be not necessarily not losing their hearing, but just well taken care of from the point of view of noise. Sure. And so I had a group of students that I took with me. And for a one week, we put accelerometers and vibrometers on their pumps. And we ran their system with no animals in it, you know, all day long in different configurations and actually acoustically mapped their pools, uh, their pool system and their life support system. So today, we still do this. Uh, I've, I've put hydrophones in their pools. And so what happens is if they're going to have a night function, their ballroom is surrounded by the beluga pool and the open ocean pool. And of course, they also now have a dolphinarium. And so what happens is we get recordings from them. So if they're having a wedding in the ballroom and the DJ you know, props up the music too loud, then I know that that's happening, and then we are able to call and say, "You you got to turn it down. You can't wow. have this, you know, volume of sound." As I say, they are extremely cautionary with regard to noise impacts to their animals, and and they are acutely aware of it. So, and every month I get recordings sent, and we analyze them to determine: Do they have a bad pump? Is the you know is the gate making too much noise? You know what's happening? So all this basically comes down to life at Fetch Lab is not just canines, but it turns out to be we've done everything from elephants, wild cheetahs, walruses. What? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So here we are today really working on things. And hopefully when the hearing aids get, you know, when I finally get that developed, you know, then they'll be affordable by dog owners who can qualify with a dog can qualify obviously by having enough residual hearing, but also the owner needs to qualify because in order to put hearing aids on dogs and my dog was first dog to get hearing aids, but my wife is an exotic animal trainer by degree. And so this dog was highly trained because he was being used on animal planet and all kinds of things like that. And when he started to lose his hearing, she noticed that he was becoming very frustrated because he couldn't hear off-camera cues and stuff like that. And so he was the first one that we put, we actually put a BTE hearing aid on him. The, the hearing aids were attached to a special cape that he wore and the tubes went into his ear. And the problem is that dogs don't want something in their ear. And so it takes special training and really concerted training on the part of the owner to have the dog be able to keep the hearing aid in his ear. Moreover, even if the dog accepts the hearing aid in his ear, because it's not a human, I can't never guarantee an owner that the dog is not going to acknowledge the hearing aid. In the case Uh, of the nine hearing aids that we've put on dogs, seven out of nine worked out very well, including one dog that is a search and rescue dog that belongs to a vet in Austin, Texas, and wears hearing aids while doing his job. And it works out very well. But if the owners are not, you know, consistent and consistently training, that won't happen. And even if it does, the dog may decide that it doesn't, you know, want to acknowledge it. So this is kind of the going on. Like I say, you know, I think from a student point of view to become an AUD, working at Fetch Lab leads them to have a lot of questions because it's not rote memory. It's not a menu of A to Z. 
There's nothing that says what you should do for the patient that you have because it's an animal and every animal is differently. And certainly if you're working with marine mammals, that's a difference. So by a long way around, that's kind of both the history of Fetch Lab and what we are doing today. Wow. I mean, it's it's just so expansive, but so fascinating. And just to think, yeah, the examples you've pointed out, I mean, specifically just the work in the aquarium and how that's definitely related to what we do with the auditory system and how we understand sound and just how audiologists can be uniquely capable in situations like this that I've never considered. And I think that's so fascinating. I do have to know, I mean, I have a dog, she's amazing, but I look in her ear and that ear canal is the most irregular shape I've ever seen. So, and how are you making a mold for for that kind of, that shape of ear canal? That actually have me laughing here. That's kind of funny. So a dog has a, both a vertical and a horizontal ear canal. So when you look in at first, what you're looking is straight down. You're looking at the vertical canal, which then takes uh, – it, it's got a little bump in there, which we call Noxon's Ridge. And then it takes a 90-degree angle and goes down to the ear, just like – sort of like ours does. Wow. And that doesn't affect the dog's hearing. The dog is still s- subject to noise-induced hearing loss or anything that a human is subjected to. But you got to be crafty with the otoscope if you're going to be looking all the way down the, the dog's ear. And so the funny story is that so on that first dog that I told you with the hearing aids, the dog came in, my wife was handling it, and we poured ear molds just like we do for people. You know, we put the blocker in there and, and we're pouring them into the vertical canal. So I get this done and I send it off to hearing aid company. And the next day or two days later, approximately when these things arrived, I get a call from the hearing aid company and the guy says, what did you send me? (laughs) And so I said, well, you know, they're molds for a hearing aid. And he says, I've never seen anything like this before. I said, well, it's for a dog. He goes, a dog? Are you crazy? You know, So, so I'm like, no, I'm not crazy. It's for a dog, you know? And so what we found out over time is that if we send them to hearing aid company, whether it's Starkey or Phonak or whatever, because the canal looks so different, we actually have to label everything. We have to label this is up, this is down, this is right, this is left, uh, because because they just don't look like anything that these guys have ever dealt with in the past. And so we always get the, what the heck is this? So I'm not surprised. So I know that dogs are more sensitive to a higher frequency range than humans are when it comes to testing things like that. I mean, are you, so for example, with the bear or the ABR that you're doing with dogs, when you do a frequency specific test, are you, I mean, are you testing up into these higher frequencies than we would typically see? I know, I mean, a dog whistle is inaudible, you know, so I'm just curious, are, are you limited by the equipment? Is there equipment that is specialized to produce higher frequency sounds for a situation like this? Or is it kind of irrelevant in this case? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. One of them is, yes, we can make the equipment to be able to do some higher frequency sounds, although we don't. And here's the reason why. I want to take a step back a minute because it's an interesting question that you're asking, and and many of the military handlers and the civilian handlers will ask me the same question. The routine is that people 
what I hear people say is dogs hear so much better than humans. And in fact, that's not necessarily the case. Dogs can hear higher frequencies than humans can hear, and they are very sensitive to those higher frequencies. But at some of the lower frequencies, actually a person does better than a dog. Now, we do not routinely use gated tone bursts to test the higher frequencies, and here's the reason why. The average person that's going to come to me and ask me to, to test their dog's hearing is only concerned, it's a pet. Their only concern, is the dog going to hear me call them? Is the dog going to be able to hear when somebody comes home into the house? So they just want to hear the common things that any person would want to hear. And there really is no need to test those higher frequencies. So we typically do not do it. That makes sense. That's really interesting. I'm curious too, what some of the contexts, I mean, in this world where we're seeing so many more working animals, especially dogs with jobs, I feel like it makes a lot of sense that someone let's say, who relies on their dog for hearing. I mean, there are plenty of people who use a hearing dog as a, as a service animal. You'd want maybe your dog to have their hearing screened once a year or some kind of context like that so you know they can do their job well. Um, and I know, I think the search and rescue was another great example that I hadn't thought of. Are there other any interesting contexts in terms of dogs or animals in general with jobs that you see this kind of audiologic care becoming more part of the norm? Yeah, it depends on what the dog's job is. So, I mean, there's, unfortunately, we are all subject to the law and whatever. And so it's not likely that a seeing eye dog would be getting a hearing test and then, you know, being put back online because there's too many, you know, legal problems if the dog, for some reason, doesn't hear something or whatever. But for many dogs, having a hearing test certainly can prolong the working life of that dog. And this is what we see with military people. If you got a dog that is uh, a dog and handler who have been being deployed on a regular basis, and they get deployed to places where, you know, there are gunfights and whatever, then they get tested every time they come back. And they get baselined when they come into the program, then they get tested when they come back. Because Sometimes they just need rest. Sometimes that dog can't go out and work again, and we have to pull it offline. But if we're testing it, then we can extend the working life of those kinds of dogs. This also applies towards uh, police dogs. Presently, I'm doing some work with the Cincinnati SWAT team, and we worry about their dogs that are on site when the SWAT team is going to breach a doorway or something like that. And all the training that they go to under, you know, firearms and stuff. So by testing the dogs routinely, as you say, and it probably is, you know, an annual test or something like that, we can head things off and it can extend the working life of the dog for sure. Wow. Wow. What a great way to use this like emerging diagnostic information. I'm curious. So it sounds like the Fetch Lab works, I mean, with a lot of different animals. Would you say it's, is it fair to say primarily canines? At the university, it is definitely canines. We don't, okay. we don't, but tend, outside we don't of tend that, to yeah. Be, but like, you know, so right now, one day a week, we're with the SWAT teams. Okay. Typically, once the COVID thing goes through, one day a week, we would be up at the Indianapolis Zoo. Once a year, sure, we're sure. in South Africa. So, you know, yeah, there are other things going on. But if it's a day-to-day -day thing every week, then we're talking about 
basically puppies, older dogs that are coming into Fetch Lab at the university. Gotcha. So is the testing then almost all electrophysiologic testing? Are you working on any behavioral testing options? I have a feeling it, it would take a while to train a dog to then be able to perform some kind of behavioral audiometry, if at all. What is that looking like? Well, you know, it's a good thing you bring up. As we all know that the electrophysiological test is not a true test of hearing. And this is the reason why many animals have been tested behaviorally over the years. I mean, Hefner and Hefner were doing behavioral testing of a myriad of different species, you know, since 1950. But it's really dicey. We don't rely at all on behavioral testing. One, because it takes a long time to do. You've got to test a lot of frequencies. The dog needs training. There's a behavioral bias that goes into the analysis of it. Whereas the reason why the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals relies thanks to Dr. George Strain on the ABR, or what we call the bear test, is because it's about as objective as we can get, and it runs quickly, and the dog can do it. You know, in the past, a veterinarian, if you came in with your dog and said, I think my dog is losing his hearing, he's not, you know, he's not getting up, or he's not acknowledging, you know, me calling him, or whatever like that, a veterinarian might jangle some keys or use a clicker or something. But as we know, that is no test of hearing at all. And because dogs are very sensitive to vibration, if you're in the same room and do something like that, you haven't proven anything. So that's why the gold standard is the ABR. And that is largely what we do. Gotcha. So could you break down then kind of what that testing looks like when you do the bear test? Forgive my ignorance, but I feel like maybe the fur would make your impedances a little funny. Is there sedation involved or do you just kind of get the dogs when they're, you know, taking a nap? What's the setup look like? Okay. So the setup looks like, first of all, we use bent needle electrodes. So needle electrode goes on each ear and one on, on the vertex. We don't have any problem with fur. No, usually, no impedance issues at all there then. No, no. <laughs> Very different uh, from and, the babies I'm seeing. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what we do is uh, when we, we come in and when the people come in, we put lidocaine on the three spots where we're going to put the electrodes. And then we put the electrodes on. And then it's the same ER3A or ER2 ear inserts that we're using. And so you have a person that's holding the pup or the handler might be, you know, uh, restraining the dog. As far as sedation goes, this is another good thing that you're bringing up. And as people go through to get the animal audiology certificate, there's some veterinary training that needs to be done. One is restraint. But the other one is this. By law, we may not practice veterinary medicine. Now, in legal terms, that term practice has very, very specific meaning. In our case, we do have an animal care and use committee at the university who oversees us, but we are not allowed to sedate any dog or any animal, actually, because we can't practice veterinary medicine. That is the role of the veterinarian. So typically, puppies don't require it. When puppies come in, and I have no problem with this, you get this, it's kind of funny, I mean, I have faculty members that would just love to come over on Friday afternoon, sit on the floor in the hallway and play with puppies. 
And they, <laughs> they love it, you know? So when puppies come in, generally what we do is, you know, we, we get them tired, uh, we put the lidocaine on, and then the puppy is held, and usually they're, they're just fine. We have had dogs that puppies that don't want any part of it. You know, they'll try to climb up my technician's arms. And but but generally we don't have a problem and we never, ever sedate puppies. It wouldn't have any effect on the test, but it's not what the owner breeder wants to see. And I don't think that it serves any purpose. If we have an older dog coming in, then there are a couple of things that we are required to do. One is they have to show proof that the dog has been rabies vaccinated. The other thing is that I tell them before they come, when they're making the appointment, I'll say to them, if you feel that your dog is not going to stay still, reasonably still, like I'm not, you know, it it might pant, it might move its head a little bit, but if it's going to go crazy, or you think the dog is going to be nippy or bite, then you need to go to your attending veterinarian and get a sedative from your vet and do whatever the vet tells you to do with that sedative. Having said that, you know, what they'll likely do is go to their veterinarian. The veterinarian is likely to prescribe something like ACE promazine. And then the only thing that we have to be concerned about is ACE promazine can work both ways. Some dogs will take ACE promazine and they'll get logy and they'll be sedated and they just want to sit down or lay down and just, you know, vegetate. But some dogs will take ace promazine and go off the wall. And so what I tell the owner is, you have to get the sedative and follow the directions of your veterinarian. And I advise you that if the dog has not been sedated before with an oral sedative, that you talk to your veterinarian about trying it before you ever come in at home, where if the dog has a bad reaction to it, you have the veterinarian available And that veterinarian then needs to see that dog, maybe prescribe a different type of sedative or whatever the case may be. But yeah, we are very limited. All we can do is straight up and down audiology. We are not allowed to do anything else other than that. Yeah, that's totally fair. And it's something that I hadn't considered when you think, I mean, I feel like anytime you're in an emerging discipline, there's a lot that has to be fleshed out in terms of scope of practice and what's going to fall under you know, one category or the other. So it's great that you guys are taking things like that into consideration. And honestly, it makes total sense. So I know you're currently in the process of working on a more general hearing aid that you know can maybe be a bit more accessible for people. I'm curious, actually, when you're talking about the hearing protection, especially for service dogs, are there any considerations for that that like we might not consider in terms of you know the noise reduction rating needed, or if because I know different earplugs have different. I'm trying to think of like a frequency response curve where it you know is going to be better at reducing other frequency more. You know, are there things like that that you're having to consider in the material? type or what's kind of going into your thought process there? Okay. So I have just developed, which is now obtainable by the civilian community, a hearing protection device that was originally designed for multipurpose military canines specifically, but it works for any dog. And, you know, when I first started to do this with the Army Research Office and talking to the military vets and everything, there was a lot of talk when I spoke with their handlers about, well, what about you know using earplugs and stuff? Now, I'm not a fan of earplugs, at least not for canines, 
because my experience, and you probably are very much more experienced than I am. So, but my experience is that if you go to a workplace where the hearing conservation program, even though the audiologist will teach about the hearing protection devices and fit them, you know, a good number of the employees either A, are very much against wearing them. They have all kinds of reasons, like I won't be able to hear my machine or whatever the case may be. And about half of them that do wear them, you know, will just shove them in. They're not fitting them right. And so it's almost useless to have them even put it on. Now you're talking about trying to put it on a dog who really doesn't want to have something in its ear. You know, now it's doubly hard to do. So we developed a snood-like device, which basically fits over the dog's head, has acoustic foam in the earpieces, and it fits snugly around the dog's whole head and part of the neck so that noise can't intrude into it. It does have a noise reduction rating, but when it comes to frequencies, that's when we are a little bit more careful. Since this was designed for the military, we know that the lower frequencies are the hardest ones to attenuate, which should just make physical sense. Sure. But it is the lower frequencies that most of these dogs are being subjected to, such as gunfire, IEDs, flashbangs, things like that. So we have gotten and developed using acoustic, various different acoustic foams, a way of getting better attenuation at the lower frequencies. And my reasoning for that is once you get to the higher frequencies, they attenuate rapidly anyway. So it really doesn't matter. The attenuation is going to happen naturally, but it's the lower frequencies and specifically for these working animals that are going to be working in impulse, you know, gunfire types of situations. Sure. And so now it's interesting that you bring this up because every 4th of July, I go through hell and high water. I cannot even tell you the number of calls that I'm getting from all over the nation. Oh, uh, no. About my dog is in the bathroom. He's going crazy. He doesn't like fireworks. How far away do we have to be from the fireworks and what can we do? And so this particular snood type of hearing protection device, which is called Rexpex, R-E-X-S-P-E-C-S, is good for fireworks because it was designed for, you know, military gunfire and explosions and police type of work. And so now people can order them and and get them. But yeah, a 4th of July is a disaster because everybody's dog seems to be (laughs) noise phobic. And so, you know, but I, you know, I, so I'm like, well, I, I can't, give you a hearing protection device right right now you have to kind of go get it yourself and here mm-hmm. it is the 4th of July and you know nothing's going to happen on the 4th of July but I recommend you do it for next year but yeah a lot of noise phobic dogs out there wow so is the ear pro from Rexpex is that something that you developed yeah i was working with a, a group of people this was an army project and i was wow. working with a group of people from uh from ZEO incorporated the army is the one that came to me and said well now that you've alerted us to you know the fact that the helicopter ride with no hearing protection is not good for the dog what do we do about it and uh in, <laughs> you gave in typical, a problem and now you've got to give them a solution <laughs> yeah in typical military fashion it was hey commander fix this <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah so we worked on it for a while We did real ear testing with the various different foams and whatever, and it all panned out. And so that's what's being used now. 
the Army would like other types of hearing protection that have more bells and whistles on it than than simply the snood. But the snood is good for transportation. It's good, you know, for helicopter rides, fixed wing aircraft, you name it. And so, but now people can get it. You know, you, anybody so can go great. on to Rec Specs and, and order it. Yeah, I was just reading through the reviews and people are just raving about it. And it's especially for 4th of July and fireworks. And that, what a great idea for something that I, I totally see the utility from a military perspective. But man, so many people I know and their dogs just really struggle with, you know, loud noises like that. So, oh, yeah, it's great. absolutely. It's great. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm curious if there's are there any other things in the intervention space? So we've briefly talked about your sort of working towards that hearing aid. I'm not sure if you want to talk more about that and so this hearing protection, but maybe with other animals as well or other things like now that we know we can do some kind of diagnostic information, you know, audiologically on animals, I'm throwing you with the the same question that the military gave you. What else can we be doing about it? And I guess this is also kind of a question to what the future of research is looking like for the Fetch Lab. Well, I mean, right now, the big future as far as anything that you can do directly with the dog other than behavioral training is the use of uh, EarPro and the canine hearing aid. I believe that in the future, honestly, I get calls not only in the United States, but I've had calls from... Russia, from France, from Italy, or people that want me to come over and test their dog and put a hearing aid on their dog, which partially is unreal because a lot of folks, you know, and, and you would know this better than I do, as an audiologist, you know, there's a lot of people that believe that if I put a hearing aid on their dog, it's the magic bullet and the dog will go back to the way it was and, and mm. everything is going to be hunky-dory, you know, yeah. and then, and typically what I'll get, this is almost to a T, almost as a quote, people will email me or they'll call me up and they'll say, you know, I have this dog and he's our family pet or or he's my, you know, my buddy. And I just want to create, you know, a good quality of life for him because he's losing his hearing. And would you put a hearing aid on my dog? And the, my first response to that is, look, by the mere fact that you are calling me up and asking me to do this tells me that you are a conscientious owner and your dog has a good quality of life because you're concerned enough to even call me and ask me such a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I applaud them for that. But right now, until we can actually do the work and get a hearing aid that is just going to be good for canines, it doesn't need all the things that we have on human hearing aids and it will be affordable you know, this is kind of where we're stuck. Because right now, if I put a hearing aid on a dog, it's usually I have to order a either a Starkey or a Phonak hearing aid and then work with the dog with that. And so you're looking at thousands of dollars. Now, sure. you know, dogs undergo presbycusis just like people do. So if a person comes in and they have a German Shepherd or a Golden Retriever or something like that, and this dog is 11 or 12 years old, the life expectancy of that dog is only going to be probably about two more years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then I'm not going to build them out of a bunch of money. So I'm obligated to say, you know, do you really want to spend $3,000 and a year or more of training on a dog whose life expectancy isn't going to be that long? And wow. yeah. I think people, you know, that's, and that's a harsh thing because people, you know, look, the fir- one of the first guys that ever came in, it was an elderly man came in with his dog. 
his wife had long passed and it was him and the dog. He came in and we tested his dog and I had to go to him and say, you know, sir, your, your dog has a severe hearing loss. Well, the man sat down in the chair and cried his eyes out for 15 minutes wow. because I was telling him that his only buddy in life, you know, was having a hard time hearing him. And that was hard information to give this person. So sure. I think the hearing aid is, you know, that's going to be number one. We're still trying to work on the docket with that. Certainly what whatever we do uh, for the military is there, but also just trying to get a larger scope of animals to test because so many animals have not been tested. And if we are testing hearing on an animal that has already had a behavioral test, then typically what we'll do is we'll do the electrophysiological testing to see if it actually matches the behavioral data. And, and it's just another proof. I gotcha. think other, other than that, what I've been doing a lot lately, and again, this started with the, with the military, is kennel noise mitigation. So typically kennel, whether it's the military kennel or whether it's humane society or whatever, kennels are made to be cleaned. So what are you looking at? You're looking at a kennel Hard, that's going to have flat surfaces. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> concrete floor, block wall, maybe a tin ceiling, and how many dogs is it going to house? So one of the first papers that I wrote on kennel noise was we had a kennel here at our veterinary tech school, and so we went in and did the uh, noise testing when there were no dogs in it which is another thing that goes with this whole fetch lab thing is I'm the guy that's responsible for teaching physical acoustics to our AUD students. And a lot of them, <laughs> I would hear say, why do I need to learn physics? I'm going to be in audiology. And I'm like, really? Okay. You know, well, here's the reason why. And so then we go down this path. So we tested the kennel with no dogs in it. And then we brought in 22 dogs that were put into the kennel. And we bear tested all those dogs before entering the kennel. Now, realizing that this is a test of threshold, so, you know, we had to wait a little bit to give them some ear rest because you don't know what they were subjected to either in transit or whatever. But we, sure. we, we baseline tested them. We tested them again at three months. Literally half of those dogs in three months were showing enough of a significant threshold shift from being in the kennel. Wow. And at the end of six months, over 90% of them had hearing threshold shifts from being in the kennel. And when I took the readings in the kennel of noise readings with a sound level meter, you're looking at, you know, ups and downs, of course. You know, the night is a very quiet time. But sure. for a good portion of the day, the noise in that kennel was anywhere from 98 to 110 dB. Wow. So I had to go tell the veterinarians, look, by federal law, you cannot work in there without hearing protection. You just can't mm. because you're over the limit. Well, this was another thing when, you know, Uncle Sam came my way was, you know, they're, now you're talking about kennels with a huge amount of dogs in it. So, you know, what happens now? Again, it's an up and down. But the noise levels in these kennels are tremendous. So I'm saying to them, look. You're expecting this dog to work. You're expecting it to potentially work under gunfire or whatever the case may be. But you come in in the morning, all these dogs are fed and they're going out of their minds. And 
the noise is so high level in the kennel that by rights, you shouldn't even be in there, at least not without hearing protection. But now you're going to take this dog out and you're going to go do things with it, whether it's gunfire or whatever. You're just adding to the threshold shift that you already have in the dog by virtue of the way that your kennel is built and how you're kenneling the dogs. And so a lot of work lately, and this is going to continue to go on, is teaching people, whether it's military or not, to that you have to mitigate the noise in the kennel. You can't just lay concrete down and then go for it. You need to be able to have some noise mitigation in effect in the kennel, not only for the people that are going to go in there and work, but also for the dogs that are in there and can't leave. And so that is becoming, and now the follow-on to that is that we've had, just like Georgia Aquarium, we've had a number of zoos and aquarium that have come to us and said, well, how does our backup area work? Is our backup area, when we bring the animals in at night, is the backup area too loud with all these, because it's just like a kennel. Uh, is my pool system too loud? Do I, my life support system for the dolphins, is it too? So now we're in the realm where not only are we looking at mitigating kennel noise, but we're now looking at mitigating what happens when you have a large performance pool that dolphins are going to be in? What happens if you have a tiger exhibit and it's outdoors and you've got traffic going by and everything? And so that's going to be a whole, uh, that's a whole nother world. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's so far reaching. I just did not think about this at all. (laughs) It's It's amazing. It's such a great opportunity, I I think, to really, I mean, you're so right. I, I often felt that way early in my AUD program in that early, you know, psychoacoustics course, learning about sound and physics. And I'm like, come on, how relevant is this? And now that I'm out, you know, and I'm trying to explain concepts to people. And, you know, I have children who are in classrooms and I'm trying to explain why this certain, you know, setup or this lack of any kind of like how all of these things are related. And so I definitely see how this information could be so helpful in just being, like you said at the beginning, just kind of framing things in a new way. It's the same type of information, but it's just thinking outside of the box with it. That's really, really great. Well, you know, as an audiologist, you know, and I always ask my students about this because I'm not an audiologist. And I ask my students about this and say, you know, what do people think about hearing? And, you know, people themselves, like hearing is probably one of the last things anybody thinks about until it's too late or until, Mm. you know, we get men that come in you know, I, you're here for a hearing test. Yeah, I came down for a hearing test because my wife told me I had to come down because she's tired of repeating herself. Well, all these different things, you know. Yeah. But now, if you consider how humans, where on the totem pole does hearing lie with humans as far as health goes, when you get into animals, nobody thinks of animals. They don't worry about how the kennel is built. They're not worried about until it's the 4th of July and they have problems with their dogs. They're mm-hmm. categorically not worried about audiology. For, and then you start talking about exotic animals. You know, that you know we for years had built pool systems in aquaria that were just horrible. And, you know, now things have changed. You know, you have to have an uneven bottom. You want to put some substrate in it, which all helps to mitigate some of the noise. Uh, you're, you're more, they're more attuned to life support systems that are more noise friendly, but sure. But people don't think about that with animals. That's the last yeah. thing they're going to think about. 
That's a really good point. And I think your work is going to be instrumental, I think, in reshaping that, you know, and audiologists can kind of be that point person, have, you know, offering that insight and under- that understanding of how important hearing health is in general. Man, there's been so much great information. So we're, we're kind of coming up towards the end of our time. Sure. I'm curious if there's a single, you know, memory or breakthrough or just moment. I know you have worked in a lot of different spaces with a lot of different professionals and animals. Is there any kind of, you know, memory that sticks out to you as one of the real big highlights of your career? Oh, boy. There are probably more than I can imagine because, you know, to me in this field, in the animal audiology field, I have to tell you, every day is a new day. And, you know, it's like uh, Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get, you know. But I think one of the things that has stuck with me was the first dog that we put hearing aids on. So we would train, my wife and two kids would train every night, and we had it to where we put the hearing aids on. He didn't seem to be, you know, acknowledging the hearing aids or whatever. And so every evening, you know, we would sit in four corners and each one of the kids and we all had a one of those bicycle horns that you could press and it, you know, it goes. Eh, 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 honk, eh. Honk. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, one person would honk it and, and we would and he, you know, kind of just kind of sit there or have this glazed overlook. But after about a month of time, we're there one night and one of the kids honked their horn. And this is what astounded me. The dog's facial expression actually changed. And he perked up like, what in the world was that? Like, I actually heard something. It Hmm. it was phenomenal. And then he went to the source of the sound. And that's when we knew, okay, the hearing aid is working. It's He's acknowledging it behaviorally. And so as we processed and went into that time after time, and he started to wear them, before he died, this dog would come, you know, on a Saturday morning, he would actually come and want you to put his cape on and put the hearing aids on. He oh did my not want to be, you know, and, you know, I was blown away, absolutely blown away by it. So I guess that is, that's one of the things that sticks out to me. That's an amazing breakthrough. That feels, I mean, eventually, let, let's be honest, Dr. Shipley, I'm, there's going to be a movie about your career, right? This is, <laughs> I this is far too fascinating. And I do think that's going to be the kind of like big moment in the movies when the dog perks up and, and then you've got the montage of them running in each morning, ready to put their hearing aids in, right? That's going to be too good. I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I, I somehow doubt that that will ever happen. Not even sure I want that to happen. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is, as I say, and it's an emerging field. Almost everything that we do in the FETS labs, every new animal that we test is just something that hasn't been done before. Everything is new. The whole, everything in life of animal audiology is as brand new as you can get it. And unfortunately, like many things, it leads us to more questions than answers. Hmm. But the fact that we have the time to work on it and keep on looking for the answers is amazing. And when I step back and I look at, you know, students that I've had in Fetch Lab and students that I have in Fetch Lab now who are so dedicated 
to the animals, whether it's because they just like puppies or whatever the case may be. You know, I'm seeing these people and going, you know, you're in the AUD program, but do you realize how much on the, you are on the cutting edge. You're doing what no one has done before. You are it. And that pleases me to no end. Yeah. Powerful. That's great. I know your students are really fortunate to have you. A former student of yours, a friend of mine, is how we were able to connect. So I know you've had a big impact on the students you've worked with over the years. So that's just, that's amazing. to hear that. Okay. Well, we are just about at the end of our time. If we have people out there who would like to connect with you or learn more about the work that the Fetch Lab is doing, I think you told me that they can head to the UC Fetch Lab website, which we're going to include in the show notes. Is that right? Yes. And that the, that website is where we answer questions, but we also make appointments and things. And they can get a hold of me if they ask for me. They can get a hold of me and, you know, then get my email address or whatever, and we can converse. That's the best way to do it. Perfect. Well, I'm sure you're going to have some people knocking on your door with some dogs and other animals that they're worried about. (laughs) But the work you're doing is great and so excited. And I'm excited to have connected with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so honored that you would even invite me. Thank you so much. (laughs) Of course. Of course. All right. It was so great talking to you. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.